You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. When you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For Yahweh your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For Yahweh your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. Then the officers shall speak to the people, saying, Is there any man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man dedicate it. And is there any man who has planted a vineyard and has not enjoyed its fruit? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man enjoy its fruit. And is there any man who has betrothed the wife and has not taken her? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man take her. And the officers shall speak further to the people, saying, Is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. And when the officers have finished speaking to the people, then commanders shall be appointed at the head of the people. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably, and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when Yahweh your God gives it into your hand, then you shall put all its males to the sword, but the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves. And you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which Yahweh your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. But in the cities of these peoples that Yahweh your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as Yahweh your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all the abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin." against Yahweh your God. When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human, that they should be besieged by you? Only the trees that you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down, that you may build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it falls.
Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 667 of this podcast. Today is Friday, July 21st, 2023. That was a reading of Deuteronomy 20. And lots to do about war. And what's up with all this war in the Old Testament? So much of it. Well, <laughs> there's so much of it because people don't always get along. I don't know if you've noticed that. That's something I've observed. You might have also observed it. People don't always get along. Nations don't always get along. And actually, <laughs> after reading a book by two authors, Una Hathaway and Scott J. Shapiro, here a few years back called The Internationalists, I realize that in our day and age, we have been conditioned to think of war very, very differently than people in times past, in centuries past, millennia past. About a century ago, there was a shift, a dramatic shift, undertaken and attempted with some success by the academic elites progressive politicians, very influential intellectuals in the West in particular, to stigmatize war as being always immoral, especially aggressive war. But war, they declared illegal. They signed a treaty in Paris, and they declared that according to international law, war would be illegal moving forward. And anybody who waged aggressive war against their neighbor to attempt to take territory and exact their demands from their neighbors of other nations, they would be guilty of violating international law. Before that treaty, it was not so. And even after that treaty, we can, in hindsight, say, man, we had <laughs> quite a lot of wars and so what was the point and what a useless piece of paper, but not so, not so quite a lot of effort in the last century since the signing of that treaty has been poured into trying to re-engineer society, re-engineer culture, and in particular, the culture of men. So as to take away that shine associated with fighting wars for your country, for your people, winning wars, associating a sense of manly honor and valor and dignity with being a successful warrior, that the very educated, very elite people who wanted to make war illegal and have no more war, have world peace, that they realized they had to do in order to make it stick and make it work because they reverse engineered what is it that makes people go to war against each other? And on one level, it's the governments of those countries. But then it's not just that though, right? It's the governments which represent their people, in particular, their men. And insofar as it has always been the case that wars are fought by men, that's the rule because men are bigger and stronger and more aggressive it is typically the men who prosecute the wars, fight the wars, send others off to prosecute 
and fight the wars. It's typically the men who appoint leaders over countries who will make decisions to take their countries to war, either aggressively or defensively. And so, yes, it's the governments of countries that go to war, but insofar as those governments represent their people, especially their men, you have to do something about the men. You have to deal with men thinking that there is honor to be gained or there is plunder, there is spoil to be had in waging war. You have to put a stop to that. You have to condition men out of that. And so if you look back on the last century or so of American history, for instance, I think you'll note, I think you will see not just a common and typical presentation of war that accords with centuries and millennia of human history and culture and writings and speaking and medium with regards to the fighting of wars. But you'll note that there is a dramatic shift in the way that men in general are portrayed. There's a kind of emasculation that has been undertaken in the West, in the U.S., that is designed to secure, establish, maintain world peace. This emasculation is supposedly for the greater good. And what do you hear? You hear these empty phrases about how if women ruled the world, if women ran the country or the countries of the world, if women ran society, if we had matriarchy, we wouldn't have wars. You hear things like that, and those are part of a larger whole. They're part of a larger push to reward passivity and to reward those who are perceived by the powers that be, the elites, the internationalists, as more likely to fulfill this vision of world peace. And part of how I know this is because that's what Scott J. Shapiro and Una A. Hathaway said in The Internationalists. They said that that was one of the big objections when the decision was come to and it was being debated, hey, let's declare international war, aggressive war, illegal. One of the biggest pushbacks was, well, but what about men, right? What about men who think that fighting wars they will get honor for themselves. They will get plunder. They'll get honor for their countries. And the intuitive solution was, well, we just have to make war inherently dishonorable and ugly and gross and disgusting. And so now think back, knowing that, and knowing that they they think, those authors of The Internationalists, they think that that is a good thing. That comes through very clearly in their book. Think back on the way that wars have been presented by the media in the last several decades of the last century and in this century, think about how wars have been presented. When the left thinks that they can pursue their larger progressive aims, their larger globalist aims, they are for wars. And then, oddly enough, if their political opponents and those who are promoting more of a traditional masculinity or a traditional view of the family or a traditional view of society, if their opponents start making actual gains and start winning those wars, what does the left in the U.S. consistently do again and again? They snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. 
They did it in the war on terror. They did it in Iraq and Afghanistan. They did it in Southeast Asia. They do it again and again. And if you ask me, it's not an accident. It's not an accident that the media bangs the drums of war on trivial pretexts or dubious grounds, but then they try and choke back the response so that it will not go well and so that it will be protracted. Because what? That gives an excuse for a broad mandate to grab for power, to re-engineer society in all of the above countries involved in the U.S., for instance. If you're at war, let's say, for instance, a proxy war even in Ukraine, if any and all social engineering or economic manipulation and the negative effects thereof can be attributed to a foreign war that we are fighting, and even better, if in the case of a failure, you can blame everything on your political opponents to drive them from office, to drive them from the public square. There is so much winning in it, in a utilitarian sense. If the means are justified by the ends, and you have told yourself what you're securing is world peace, then so what if young men in particular, especially, are being sent off in the best years of their lives to fight with one arm tied behind their back. Give them rules of engagement. Give them just enough equipment to stoke it, but not actually to win it. And if they die, they die. They died for their country. That's what we'll tell their family. And if they came back scarred and cynical, well, maybe that's all the better as well, because enough generations of American fighting men coming back from seeing their friends, their battle buddies, wounded, killed, traumatized, enough of those young men coming back and becoming cynical about the whole war business and seeing no honor in it whatsoever will eventually, so the theory goes, re-engineer society in our country and also all the other countries so that eventually we will have world peace. But then there's also a concerted campaign in popular culture. It's not just war, and it's not just portrayals of wars and battles in movies, in film, in TV shows, in books. It's also how are men portrayed generally? If they come back and they are discussing decisions that need to be made in their family, in their home, in an assertive way, and they're taking leadership over their families And historically, that would be seen as very honorable and very appropriate, and they would be deferred to, and they would be respected. What will we do in our day? We will try and upend that by presenting example after example after example of men being silly and frivolous and childish and not particularly wise, not particularly virtuous, immature, perpetually adolescent, weak frivolous, cruel perhaps, tyrannical if they try and maintain that they do have authority. What did we see on sitcom after sitcom in the 90s? We saw the husbands and the fathers portrayed as 
the punchline consistently. And this also, I believe, is part of this larger effort to re-engineer society. I think there are a number of things going on all at once. It's not all just one thing. But the internationalists, when they come to a passage like Deuteronomy 20, nothing is more offensive. Nothing is more disturbing. Nothing angers them, upsets them, scares them worse than a prescription for war and how to make war that would threaten their vision and their intended objective being fulfilled ultimately. And so you almost, when you come to Deuteronomy 20, for instance, you almost have to be willing to say, regardless of what anybody's written about ethics, about international law, regardless of what anybody else thinks and feels about the appropriateness of violence or whether we should all be pacifists now for Christians in the church age, you have to put all of that aside. And it really takes an effort because so much propaganda has been hoisted upon us regarding war that you have to put all of that aside somehow, some way in order to grapple with this and not recoil in horror and revulsion. You have to be willing to recognize that the popular ethics, the popular morality, for one, may not be correct. I mean, just to put it succinctly, but for another thing, might be highly manipulative and fallacious and itself sinister. I mean, just think with me for a moment. Think with me about how men are portrayed in the media, if they're portrayed, if they're represented, how are men consistently again and again portrayed? They're portrayed in such a way as to affect a change in the cultural mindset. And if you get an example of a man who might affect a portrayal successfully that runs counter to the progressive agenda or the globalist agenda, the leftist agenda, what happens? They are immediately attacked with a war of words from all directions, from all sides, and the corporate news media and commentators and popular celebrities all of a sudden have to come out against the portrayal. However solitary it may seem, however minor it may seem, if you suppose that these are all independent actors doing their own thing, if you will consider the possibility that actually the response is scripted and this is seen as a threat because it would return us to an earlier mindset, an earlier time, an earlier frame of mind. If you realize that on the front end, it makes a great deal of sense. And it's like white blood cells attacking some perceived foreign contaminant or germ or virus or what have you. But why is that, right? Why is the cultural, psychological immune system, so to speak, regarding portrayals like, for instance, as we'll talk about later in this episode, why is the cultural immune system 
regarding films like The Sound of Freedom as a threat to be attacked. Why is the cultural immune system regarding Christians in the public square as a threat, Christian men in particular, being vocal as a threat? Why is the cultural immune system trying to promote and push for androgyny and trying to celebrate especially men who present as women, dress up as women, grow their hair out long, affect effeminate mannerisms, desire to be referred to as a woman? Why is that being promoted? And at the same time, why... (laughs) When we have examples of assertive masculinity, traditional masculinity, masculine strength, why is that being consistently again and again portrayed as toxic? Well, I think it comes back to passages exactly like Deuteronomy chapter 20, to be honest with you. And I know I'm winding up quite a lot before I actually even talk through Deuteronomy 20, but I read this and instantly... I'm thinking, man, there are so many things that could be said about this that one, people are going to tune out because they're afraid to believe that this might be actually what the text says. It says what it says. It says what it means. It means what it says. But for two, if they actually do hear me saying, yeah, this is good. This this is correct. This is fair. This is just of God. This is righteousness that God would give these instructions. It would be righteous for God's people to act accordingly, obediently, to do, not just to read, but to do. Don't be hearers of the word only, but doers. Don't be hearers only and so deceive yourselves. Be doers of the word also. For me to say that, the indoctrination in an internationalist mindset, according to the designs of the social engineers, the eugenicists, the social Darwinists, et cetera, et cetera, the internationalists, The social engineering, the indoctrination has been so strong and it's so deep and it's so pervasive that for me to agree with Deuteronomy 20, even among Christians, I fear, and that's a good word for it, I fear is going to provoke that same immune reaction, an allergic reaction, and yet it can't be avoided. I should rather agree with God in his prescription here in Deuteronomy 20 and say, That is fair. That is just. That is good. The Lord is righteous. He knows what he's about. He knows what is good to do. I would rather agree with God in Deuteronomy 20 than agree with the folks who are taking this country to hell in a handbasket. I would rather agree with God and trust myself and my soul and my mind and my heart to God than trust the folks who are targeting children, who are breaking up families who are encouraging children to rebel against their parents, to disrespect their parents, especially their fathers, who are encouraging women to disrespect and even to resent and to loathe their husbands. I would rather agree with God than agree with the folks who manipulate the world according to their designs because they think that they can play God. I would rather trust myself to Yahweh God, who is actually God, than any number of wealthy and powerful men who like to play God, because they're not God. They make very poor gods, as we will see. All of that said, let's talk about the actual passage. 
Here in Deuteronomy 20, laws concerning warfare is the heading. I'm reading this in the English Standard Version. And note the very first verse. This is not VeggieTales, right? VeggieTales did not prepare you for this moment to read through Deuteronomy 20. Phil Vischer did you a disservice. And that also, I think, is part of the larger social engineering project that the church has been given media like VeggieTales to give to our children, especially our sons, to make them soft, to make them weak, to make them cowardly, to make them faithless and self-absorbed and perpetually immature. Deuteronomy 20 verse 1 will never be the subject of a VeggieTales. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them for Yahweh your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When, not if, when, when you go out to war against your enemies. What's not in question here is whether it's when. It's not if, it's when. Verse two, when you draw near to the battle. Again, not if, not whether, when, when you go to war, when you draw near to the battle, this is what you will do. And let me just ask you the question before we read any farther, how are we doing on the whole war to end all wars propaganda? That line, which Woodrow Wilson delivered as he was sending Americans off to fight in World War I, how are we doing on that? How's that going? Uh, Not so good, right? Not so good, but that hasn't stopped the social engineers from trying to manipulate the collective consciousness. So we are going to war. In fact, right now, as of the time of this recording, it's much anticipated that in the next one to three years, there will probably be an attempt by the People's Republic of China, by the Chinese Communist Party, to take Taiwan by force, and the United States of America may engage in a hot war that would turn into World War III. If we can't deter them, then we may just fight them, and we may have World War III. And what's happening right now in Ukraine, China is going to keep it going because China can't afford for Russia to lose It's going to keep going because the United States can't afford for Ukraine to lose, or so we've been told. And so it's not an if, it's not a a weather as to wars and battles. There are wars going on. There are battles being fought that will continue. And let not your heart be troubled because God is still sovereign. The wars and the battles may be chaotic, and hellish, but God is still God. He's still sovereign. And these things don't take him by surprise. They don't catch him off guard. He's not standing up in heaven, hand on his mouth, shocked, like, oh, I had no idea that they were going to do that. No, he says, when you go out to war, when you draw near to the battle, this is what to do. Now, what's interesting is God leads with, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Let not your heart faint, verse 3. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For Yahweh your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. Now, backing up a little bit 
another contrast between the way that war was prosecuted in the previous era of Western civilization, the way that war was thought about very often was essentially wars are inevitable. When countries go to war, the one who wins, we can reasonably deduce the Lord has given victory to, and we can reasonably deduce that that is because the that country, <laughs> that country that was given the victory was right. They were correct. Their claim was just And the country that was conquered, that was subjugated, they were in the wrong. And how do we know? Because God gave the victory to those who were correct. And there are all kinds of things that could be said about that presupposition. But just understand, war was seen as diplomacy by other means. It wasn't seen as what happens instead of diplomacy or when diplomacy breaks down. War was seen as a mechanism for engaging in diplomacy. Yeah, by all means, send your diplomats. But if they can't promise your rivals, your allies, your enemies, that your country is able to hold its own in a fight, those diplomats are going to not be taken very seriously. And we know that even today in this new international order, the countries that are regarded as having quite a lot of lethality, a lot of capability of prosecuting war, they are taken more seriously at the negotiating table or when they flex diplomatically. Regardless of what the internationalists agreed to, what they signed, regardless of what they think they can convince all of humanity to agree with and to get on board with, you know, it's just like putting a dude in a dress. You can call him what you want. He's still a man. He's still a dude. He can undergo surgery and he can take hormone therapy. He's still a man. He's just a man who's undergone surgery. He's just a man who's taken drugs. Well, so also with this new social imaginary with regards to the fighting of wars, the waging of wars. And oh, by the way, courage is a very important component in fighting and winning wars and battles. It's not courage in the abstract in the case of Deuteronomy 20. It's courage because God is with you, which is to say, if God is not with you, then that's kind of a big deal. If your courage hinges on God going with you to fight your battles against your enemies, to give you the victory, take care, make sure you're counting the cost to see that you are actually going with God. Adios. Go with God. Because if you're not, well then... Maybe he gives you into the hand of your enemies instead of giving your enemies into your hand. But read on, right? Read on here. We see these questions that are asked. Has anybody, and it's always men, right? Every one of these questions is asked of the men, no women. Women should not be sent off to war, period. No ifs, ands, or buts. Women should not be sent off to fight the wars. It should be the men. Is there any man who has built a new house And has not dedicated it. Is there any man who has planted a vineyard. And not enjoyed its fruit. Is there any man who has betrothed a wife. And has not taken her. Is there any man who is fearful. And faint hearted. These are. Excellent questions. Why are these excellent questions. One. Because they get to reasons. Men. Waver. In battle. These questions get to. 
what goes on in the heart and mind of a man who may die as he fights. He may be killed by the enemy. And even if he's not killed by the enemy, his being double-minded, his being distracted is not good for his war making. It's not good for his fighting the battle successfully and coming out alive. It actually makes him less safe that he would have one eye on the door, one eye on the exit, calculating the trajectory by which he would run for it if it looked like the battle was not going well. And why is that so dangerous? Because you get one man running away from the battle and pretty soon it's a whole bunch of men running away from the battle. And pretty soon your whole army is fleeing from the enemy, regardless of what their chances were of winning. And oh, by the way, this is important to know. You have to know this. You must know this with regards to the waging of war and fighting battles. Most of war making is trying to take the will to fight away from your enemy. You might think, well, that doesn't make sense. I think most of fighting wars and waging wars is killing, right? I mean, surely that's got to be. No, 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 no. Sun Tzu would tell you that the best way to win wars is by not having to fight them. Win your battles without having to fight if you can. And how do you do that? You persuade your enemies that it's not worth fighting you. It's not worth it. They can't win. Give up now. And interestingly enough, too, we as we read down verse 10, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, and this is not referring to those people God said were to be devoted entirely to destruction. And again, lots of atheists, lots of godless folk have a real problem with that. They do not like that. They want to sit in judgment over God and his word, and they're wrong. They have no standing to judge God. They have no standing to judge his word. They're wrong. And we may not fully appreciate why they're wrong, but we know that they're wrong. We start with the premise that God is the judge. He is the one who decides what is right and wrong, good and evil, not them, and not this current social imaginary, not the internationalists' treaty to declare war illegal, not the, G- not the Geneva Convention, not <laughs> any number of various treaties. No, God is the one who decides what is right and wrong. Men can ratify the laws of God or they can seek to abolish them, make them null and void. We should ratify rather than nullify. But verse 10 says, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it, which is to say, seek peace and pursue it. Don't be bloodthirsty. Don't love violence. If you can have peace, have peace. And if the city that you've come against is willing to negotiate a peace treaty with you, cool, great. All the people who are in that city will do forced labor for you and serve you, which is to say they become for you your subjects. They work for you now. They will do your bidding. They will have new management. There's a new sign over the door you win. Great. That's ideal. That's fantastic. But, verse 12, if it, that is the city, makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, besiege it. When Yahweh your God gives it into your hand, which is also great, by the way, not if, not whether, when Yahweh your God gives the city into your hand, 
put all its males to the sword. Now, let's just stop right there. And I've written about this. I've talked about it before. I think the rules of engagement in Afghanistan and Iraq were incredibly stupid when Obama became president. The rules of engagement basically guaranteed we would not be able to maintain our grip on those countries. We came in, we fought, we won, and to the victor go the spoils. And all the folks who say, oh, we were just there for the oil. No, we weren't, but we should have had a right to the oil to recoup our losses. Oh, we were just there for the rare earth metals in the case of Afghanistan. No, we weren't, but to the victor go the spoils. We should have extracted that wealth and we should have kept that wealth and we should have held on to those countries. Nation building, the way that it was done was extraordinarily stupid. It was dumb. It was foolish. It was never going to work. Why? Because you are telling people with an entirely different cosmology, very different theology, but more to the point, a very different anthropology, a very different conception of what is good and what is true and what is beautiful, that they would preserve it or work towards it with you, those who didn't die in the fighting. You're telling those men to make their country like the United States, which is, you would think, quite presumptuous. But at the same time, you're not wanting to admit that their country is essentially not good, not saying what is true, not embodying the beauty that it could. It's a double-minded approach. It was one big experiment and a costly one and a wasteful one. How would it have been, and I've asked this question before, I'll ask it again, how would it have been if instead of nation building the way that we did it in Iraq and Afghanistan, the United States had gone into this or that city and offered terms and been very upfront and said, you can either surrender this or that city, or we will take the city. And when we take the city, every man in the city dies. Ooh, yeah. That's what God is commanding Israel here. That's what God is commanding Israel here. So whatever you say about that hypothetical, take care that you're not making such a broad sweeping generalized statement that you would be condemning God, you would be declaring God unjust, unfair, unrighteous, or else what would your argument be? And are you so sure you don't come to that argument, that belief in what would be appropriate or why what I'm saying in the case of Iraq and Afghanistan, or if we go to China and have to make war to defend Taiwan, if you object to what I'm prescribing, what is your Justification. What's your rationale? What's your reason? What's your excuse for objecting? Now, you can say it's never going to happen, and so we don't even need to get into that. But I think we do, though, right? I think we do because even if it's just us agreeing that God is righteous here in Deuteronomy 20, that is important right now. It's important that we agree and have it settled in our minds that God is good and that He's righteous because, oh, by the way, what do you think is happening? On the day of judgment, what do you think is happening in the end times as we read about in the book of Revelation? What do you think it is that's being described? And if you haven't read it, maybe go check it out and come back and we'll pick the conversation up again. I don't mean to be rude, but some of us need to be awakened 
from a slumber, we need to understand a lot of what we've been conditioned to believe about men and about nations and about war and about conflict and about fighting and about violence has no relation whatsoever to biblical truth. It's godless. And for those who funded it, who signed off on it about a century ago, the internationalists, the progressives, the socialists, it was self-serving and profoundly disobedient to the word of God. And they knew it and they didn't care. And they don't want you to know it because you might care. But you might say, well, what about the men? What about the men who maybe don't agree? But what, maybe there are men in the city who would say, well, I think we should surrender. What about those men? You're going to put those men to death? And here's what I would say. Don't put those men to death. If they really wanted to surrender, let them come out of the city. Let them get themselves and their families out and come over to your side or else head for the hills, right? If it's known that this is how it's going to be and they don't have a mind to fight to defend their city, then they should probably get out of Dodge before the army shows up or while the army is still out there offering peace on the condition of surrender. It's as simple as that. They have a responsibility. If they're passive men or if like in the war on terror, they want to become insurgents, what is that? And oh, by the way, maybe the end result ends up being as bad or worse when we do the kinds of things that we have been doing in the making of wars. And oh, by the way, if you're not okay with going to war against the city and putting every man in the city to death, well, then maybe you shouldn't be going to war against that city in the first place. Why are you there to begin with? And that's a fair question. That's an important question. I think we have gotten too comfortable with a low simmer of violence and the threat of violence on the most tenuous of grounds. And then we dare to talk back to God as though God is unjust. No, no. I think there's a lot of projection that's going on. We're assuming that God is like us or like our government. And yet this is a package deal. A government, a country, a people, a nation, an army, that would obey Deuteronomy 20 is obeying the commands of God more generally, more broadly to get a blessing. Otherwise, God isn't going with you into the battle and he's not going to give you the victory. You're not going to win the war or the battle and you're definitely not going to win the peace. And I think that's where we find ourselves, which is also another reason to bring up passages like Deuteronomy 20 and to reverse engineer why it is that things are going so poorly for the United States right now. And there's no question in my mind, you look at the stats, look at the people's faces, drive around an American city here or there, things are going poorly. Look at the back and forth in the halls of power. Look at the conversation among those who govern in our names. Things are not going terribly well, but do we know why that is? Are we willing to know why that is? Are we willing to do something about it? The other piece of this, though, coming back to the passage, I think the other piece of this that is very uncomfortable for people, besides this idea that you would put all the men of a city that refuses to surrender to the sword, you have this idea that the women and the children, the livestock and everything else in the city would be plundered. 
that also, whoo, oh man, that's not okay. That's not okay. Okay, explain why, right? Tell me why. Please formulate an argument that justifies your disdain for this idea that to the victor go the spoils. On what basis do you find fault with God commanding that to the victor go the spoils? And oh, by the way, on what basis do you find fault with God, including the women and the little ones, the little children, as spoil? On what basis? Now, I realize here in recent years, ISIS and Al-Qaeda and the Taliban were presented as barbaric and awful and evil and horrible, and they were and they are. They murder in the name of their demon god, Allah. When they take plunder, when they seize women and children as plunder, what they do next is evil and corrupt and awful and oppressive and cruel, and it deserves every bit of approbation and rebuke. But again, take care in the kind of denunciation and take care to separate things out because if you don't take care, what you will quickly find yourself doing is disagreeing with God, declaring God's righteous commands in Deuteronomy 20 unrighteous. And that's not where I want to be. That's not where you should want to be. It's not a good place to be. Lastly, we have this idea that the cities of the nations of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, they are to be completely devoted to destruction. Not anything that breathes in those cities is to remain alive. Everything is to be destroyed. Why? God says. God explains why. (laughs) That they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against Yahweh your God. Now, let's think about this. What are some of their abominable practices? One that comes up again and again and again is offering up their own children as human sacrifices to their demon gods. They offer up their own sons and daughters as burnt offerings to the demon gods. That's evil. These nations are evil because they have embraced the worship of these demons to such an extent they kill their own children as human sacrifices to demons, which is to say these nations are given over to the demons. God is at war with these demons. God is at war with these nations. God is commanding Israel to make war on these nations that kill their own children at the command of these demons. They are so devoted, so totally devoted to these demons that they kill their own children. That's a sobering, sobering thought. When you think about the abortion debate in the United States of America, you think about the Satanists organizing, having conventions, putting out advertisements, putting out apparel, Satan respects pronouns. It's a sobering thought when you realize that one end of the political spectrum at every level of society would sooner embrace the devil and his demons and destroy in every way they can imagine those who call them to repentance, those who do what is good, those who obey God, those who serve God. 
If they won't go in with them, they won't partner with them, they won't affirm them, they won't celebrate them, they won't subsidize them. It's a sobering, sobering thought that God declared of these nations that gave themselves totally over to that. Don't let anything live in those cities. Devote them entirely to destruction. Nothing that breathes should be left alive in those cities. Now, those cities are not all cities, and yet you may have enemies who are not among these nations. And when you go to war against those other enemies who are not of these nations, whose sin is not quite to this level, God has a different set of instructions. But even his set of instructions with regards to those other nations, that you would go to their cities, offer peace terms. If they accept, you put those cities to forced labor. They serve you now. They are subject to you. They are your servants. They are, in some sense, your slaves. You own them. You own their city. You own their labor. You own the products of their labor. That offends us, but who are we kidding? That's what it is. That has always been what it is. And who are we to talk back to God and say, that is unfair, that is unjust, that's unrighteous? Take care. Take care. I'm reading the text. If I'm misreading it somehow, some way, explain to me how. Tell me where. Let's discuss it. But God is righteous. What he says here is good, and the folks who would presume to judge him are in the wrong, and they are not espousing humility. God opposes the proud, and they should remember that. Now, just briefly, I have a few stories to get to in rapid succession, and I want you to think about these current events items, these stories, in light of what we just read in Deuteronomy 20, because you may hear these things in a different way than you've ever heard them, than you would have heard them otherwise if we had not just talked at length through Deuteronomy 20. First up, A tweet from townhall.com, July 17th, as embedded in a piece by Isaac Shore over at Mediaite, John Kirby defends the military's support for abortion travel as, quote, sacred obligation, quote, it's the right darn thing to do, end quote. Here it is, cut one. Take a listen. Why is the new DOD policy on abortion critical to military readiness? I'm really glad you asked that question. No, I mean, I really am. One in five members of the U.S. military are women, 20%. We're an all-volunteer force. Nobody's forcing you to sign up and go. People volunteer to go. You raise your right hand and you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this for a few years or even for my life. And it might cost me my life to do it. And when you sign up and you make that contract, you have every right to expect that the organization, in this case the military, is going to take care of you, and they're going to take care of your families, and they're going to make sure that you can serve with dignity and respect, no matter who you are or who you love uh, or, uh, or how you worship or don't. And, um, and our policies, whether they're diversity, inclusion, and equity, or whether they're about transgender individuals who qualify physically and mentally to serve to be able to do it with dignity, or whether it's about female service members one in five, or female family members being able to count on the kinds of health care and reproductive care specifically that they need to serve. 
that is a foundational, sacred obligation of military leaders across the river. Uh, I've seen it myself, and it matters because it says we're invested in you because you are being willing to invest in us. You're investing your life, your family's livelihood with us. We owe you that, that back in return. I had a chance a couple of weeks ago to meet with some military spouses here at the White House. Um, some were active duty members, some were spouses, all were women. And 201, they told me, uh, that abortion laws in this country that are now being passed are absolutely having an effect on their willingness to continue serving in uniform or to encourage or discourage, in this case, their spouses from continuing service. So if you don't think there's going to be a retention and a morale issue, think again, because it's already having that effect. I have a, a, a son uh, in the Navy, I think you all know that, and son-in-law too, they're both stationed down in Norfolk on destroyers. You know, and they're proud to keep serving their country in the Navy, but you know, the Navy told them where to go. They go, you go where you're told. That's the way orders work. You go where you're assigned. You don't get to choose. And so what happens if you get assigned to a state like Alabama, which has a pretty restrictive abortion law in place, and you're concerned about your reproductive care? What do you do? Do you say no and get out? Well, some people may decide to do that. And what does that mean? That means we lose talent, important talent. And we're, again, an all-volunteer force, recruiting as tough enough as it is with a very strong economy out there, we want to keep the people that we get, and we want to we want to make sure that they can continue to serve. So it has it can have an extremely extremely significant impact on our recruiting and our retention. Not to mention, it's just the right darn thing to do for people that raise their hand and agree to serve in the in the military. And there you have it. First of all, who is John Kirby, National Security Council spokesman, to declare what is the right thing to do when God says? Thou shalt not murder. Who is John Kirby to get up there and preach a small sermon about the moral duty, the moral obligation to provide access to abortion? Who is John Kirby to lecture us all about how these men and women have given an oath and that oath means something and therefore we have to subsidize, we have to fund access to abortion, which is the murder of an unborn child for women in the military and the wives of men who are in the military. And in case it's not obvious, I'm going to go there. The instances in which a woman, he said 20% of the force is women, and instances in which women are going to be in uniform and get pregnant and want an abortion are instances where that woman either has had relations with her husband, for instance, and gotten pregnant and now has a choice. She may have made an oath, offered an oath to serve her country, but that oath, God forbid, was to kill her own child so that she could finish out her enlistment term, finish her deployment, finish her training. What kind of perversity is that, that you would turn this around to she wants to serve her country? Why is she called to have more loyalty, more devotion to her country than to her maker, her God, Yahweh God? Why is she called to have more devotion to laying her life down for her country than she would laying her life down for her child, her unborn child. 
if she's married and her and her husband are expecting a child, you in the Pentagon, you in the National Security Council are going to insist that it's this noble, virtuous, righteous, right thing to do for her to get an abortion and to abort the child she's become pregnant with, with her husband. That's perverse. That is wicked. Shame on you. Shame on you. But there's more because there are other scenarios. One scenario is this woman, 20%, has not gotten pregnant with her husband. She's gotten pregnant with some other man. Maybe perhaps some man she is in uniform with. And maybe that's why she wants to get an abortion because this is not her husband's baby. This is some baby she's gotten pregnant with a man who's not her husband by. And you want to say, we need to cover over that. Blood needs to be shed to atone for her sin, which is a sin, according to God, of having relations with some other man and getting pregnant by some other man. And you want to lecture all of us about it being the right darn thing to do, that she be able to go and atone for her sin of adultery by murdering her unborn child. That's evil. That's wicked. That's sinful. That's wrong. Or in another scenario, 20%, one in five, he says, are women. You have military service members who are women who are raped. They're raped by an officer or by a fellow soldier because they're smaller, they're weaker, they're available They go out on deployment, they're in a training op, they get raped, they get pregnant, they shouldn't have been there in the first place, quite frankly, but it's wrong if they are raped. And now, instead of dealing first and foremost with those who are officers who may have raped this woman and gotten her pregnant, you're going to encourage her to do her patriotic duty as you are framing it and get an abortion. That's evil. That's vile. That's wicked. That's corrupt. That's wrong. That's not right. That's wrong. The other option, the other possibility or range of possibilities is these are the wives of men who are serving in the military and they get pregnant by their husbands who are going to go off to training, who are going to go off on a deployment. And the wives of these service members, in the interest of helping their husbands to focus on the mission, these wives are going to be told, I'm sure, again and again and again, how acceptable, how appropriate, how excusable, how right, how noble even their sacrifice of this child would be. Pretty quickly, we find ourselves in the same boat that these nations that God destroyed from the face of the earth, these nations that God made war on in Canaan, we're going to find ourselves in the same exact spot. Right now, There's this parallel that stops just short of saying that these are sacrifices to demon gods, but I wouldn't guarantee that that's going to continue to be the quiet part forever. If there's not a come to Jesus moment, if there's not a repentance and a casting out of wicked men from the National Security Council and the Pentagon, these various bureaucracies that oversee our military and our domestic government, our foreign affairs. But let's just talk about the married women who are not in uniform themselves, but their husbands 
are, and they get pregnant, and now it will be strongly implied that they need to get an abortion. They need access to abortion. They should probably get an abortion so that their husbands can focus on the mission. Their husbands can focus on getting through training and a deployment. That's perverse. That's evil. It's a wicked, wicked thing. That's not very far removed from the idea of just outright offering your child as a human sacrifice to a demon god. Or another possibility, you have these married women. They're married to men who are in uniform, who go off to fight. These married women have relations with other men because their husband's not around. They get pregnant. And now these married women whose husbands are all over the world, everywhere but there, are afraid that their husband is going to come back from war, find out that they have gotten pregnant by some other man, and their husbands are going to do something drastic. And so what do they want to do? They want to serve their country, we'll be told, and get an abortion so that their husbands are able to keep their minds on the mission and not know that their wives have been unfaithful in their absence. Or, God forbid, the wives of these service members are raped in some instances. And again, pregnancy results. And again, the same kind of thinking is not far removed from the worship of demon gods that God has consistently judged with the utmost severity and righteously when he does. Shame on John Kirby. This is reprehensible. And you want to talk about losing talent. You want to talk about people not joining the military or leaving the military. This is the kind of mindset that is leading a lot of military families to tell their younger members after generation after generation after generation of family service in the U.S. Armed Forces, don't go in. Don't join the military. This kind of mindset is not trustworthy. It's twisted. It's perverse. It's corrupt. Don't trust yourself to it. I can't trust you to it. I don't want you fighting and dying for this, under this kind of thinking. This is wrong. And those military families, they are right to counsel their younger members accordingly. They are right to. I would also tell my own sons the very same thing. And I have seven with an eighth on the way in November. Lastly, I'll play for you another bit of audio. This, a better cut of audio. This one sent to me by my wife, Lauren, posted to Instagram by Waves and Lilacs, asking, what do you think? How we talk about life matters. Here it is. Cut two. Take a listen. It's positive. We're having a fetus. Having a fetus. We're having a fetus. <laughs> and here we are. Would you look at that? Hi, fetus. Hey, got names yet? For the fetus? We've got a few we like. Focus on the family. Would like to remind you that no matter where you are on your pregnancy journey... Almost here. Keep pushing. Your fetus is doing great. Call it what you want. But the truth does not change. You want to feel the fetus kick? Um, it's a baby. It's still a baby.
And that was a fantastic, fantastic ad. Focus on the family. Check out itsababy.com for more. Very funny, also sad at the same time. If you start substituting the word fetus for baby in the way that we talk about babies that we want or that we're excited about expecting, you substitute the word fetus. And what you very quickly find is it sounds odd. It sounds weird. It sounds super weird. And what's great, and you can't see it in just listening to the audio. So check out the link in the description for this podcast episode to watch the video on Instagram. Or I'm sure they have it up on itsababy.com as well. What you can't see is you've got a lady in one scene who's unloading groceries out of the back of her minivan, and she's wearing a shirt that says fetus on board, right? Like the sign that people will put in the back window of their vehicle, sometimes baby on board, only hers says fetus on board. And then there's another scene of somebody opening up a card they've just received in the mail. And the card, instead of saying, we're having a baby, it says, we're having a fetus, right? But it's in the style of the Hallmark cards that you would buy at the store. We're having a fetus. <laughs> Nobody says that. Nobody talks like that. But, oh, by the way, fetus is just a Latin word that means infant. It means child. It means baby. It means the same thing. It's just in a different language. But this is how Satan works. He plays games with language. He twists the truth. He doesn't tell total lies, but don't be deceived. I don't want you to be ignorant about these things, brothers, sisters. I don't want you to be ignorant. This is how Satan works, that he would have us believe this is not really a person. This is not really your child. If you go and get an abortion, if you encourage somebody else to get an abortion, you're not actually encouraging them to commit murder. When these politicians and these activists debate about reproductive care, reproductive health care, no, they're actually debating over whether to murder innocent children. And for what? A secularized version of the pagan cults that worshipped demon gods in nations that God destroyed. That's what we're debating. And ultimately, <laughs> what we're debating, if we give up on that debate, what we're debating is whether to abort our own country, our own nation. Because God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. A nation reaps what it sows. What are we sowing, ladies and gentlemen? You know, I started out this episode talking through at length Deuteronomy 20 and God giving instructions for going off and fighting war because God's not ignorant about these things. Newsflash to the VeggieTales theology crowd, God's not ignorant about these things and he wouldn't have us be ignorant either. But oh, by the way, in God's economy, in God's political philosophy, Nations that destroy their children, their sons and their daughters in devotion to demons themselves are aborted and they bring it on their own heads. When a nation gives itself over to the murder of the innocent and then presumes to sit in judgment over God, that nation has devoted itself to Satanism, to the devil himself. And so what is actually being debated in our country when we hear talk of abortion bans in this or that state, what's being debated is whether we will be a country 
devoted to God, with a fear of the Lord, with humility before the Lord, to be blessed by God, or a nation devoted to Satan and therefore devoted to destruction. Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I'm excited, right? Economic realities being what they are, I'm very concerned, obviously. I'm very concerned about the rate of inflation. I'm very concerned about how highly I'm taxed. I'm very concerned about affordable housing and food and utilities. I'm very concerned about job opportunities for my sons as they approach adulthood themselves, that they would be able to support themselves and their own families in turn. I'm very concerned about the woke business, those who hate us because we love Jesus, because ultimately they really just hate Jesus. The more we follow Jesus, the more they will hate us. So let's follow Jesus well, not so that they hate us, but because we love Jesus. And actually, if they would listen, if they would hear the call to repentance, they would be saved. I may be concerned about the economic situation. I may be concerned about my career prospects when the same end of the political spectrum that wants to abort innocent children, murder innocent children, also wants to destroy the industry in which I work, by which I provide for my family. They want to take away my capacity to protect my family. They want to silence me in the public square. I'm very concerned about all of that and all the more rather than less, I'm excited that the Lord has blessed us with the expectation of another child, another son, Nathaniel, Job, Mullet, do November. And so my last thought for you, I'll leave you with this, is the big idea, the big takeaway from Deuteronomy 20 is that God's ways are better than our ways. And anybody who would tell you that the United States of America has some pride of place to sit in judgment over the laws of God, the commands of God, the promises of God, the character of God at root, anybody who would tell you that, they're wrong. Warn them if they might listen but don't you go believing them. If they won't listen, just step back. Don't be standing too close. God gives grace to the humble. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Oh.